Today on Understanding Immigration, the Texas Synagogue Attack, and Alien Voting. There were immigration executive orders issued by President Biden on his first day of office that revoked some of the orders that former President Donald Trump had put in, uh, including one that sought to enhance vetting of foreign nationals who were traveling to the United States. What sense does it make to have somebody who's only going to be here for a short period of time, whose vote, who can't put roots down here, who won't have, who won't deal with the actions of the consequences of their vote? Coming to you from Washington, D.C., you are now listening to FAIR's Understanding Immigration Podcast. All right, welcome back to another episode of Understanding Immigration presented by FAIR. This is Preston Hennikins, FAIR's Government Relations Manager, and I'm joined today in the studio by Jason Pena from FAIR's Research Department. Today, we're going to be talking about a topic that's been in the news lately, uh, two topics that actually have been in the news lately. Uh, the first, we're going to talk about cities and states doling out all kinds of perks and, and benefits to illegal aliens and to, to aliens that are here legally, um, including voting, uh, as many people saw in the New York City um, law that just took place. Uh, we're also going to be talking about uh, the unfortunate event that occurred in Texas with the synagogue attack uh, with a, uh, an alien from the United Kingdom. So let's pivot first to what happened in New York. So for some background, the incoming New York City Mayor Eric Adams uh, said that he is planning to allow a law passed by the city council that allows aliens to vote in city elections. By, by not vetoing this, it pretty much goes into effect. So, Jason, I wanted to get your thoughts on this. You know, why did the city's 51-member council uh, vote this through? You know, what's the background behind this bill? What's the purpose of it? For sure, Preston. It's good to be here. So, just for some background on the, on the bill itself, when we look at, at a jurisdiction like New York City, one can almost think this is a long time coming. This is a city that has provided so many benefits to illegal aliens over the years, but the bill's original co-sponsor, council member uh, Rodriguez from the Brooklyn area, I believe, he has been pushing for immigrants in general, whether they're here lawfully or unlawfully, to, uh, to have extended benefits. And this is just, this comes on the heels of that. He's been pushing for lawful uh, immigrants to have a say in the city's elections at the municipal level. So I believe since last year, he was able to corral uh, a supermajority of the council members to come and support this bill. Interestingly enough, we had a bipartisan opposition to it. Uh, both Republicans, some Republicans and many Dem- and some Democrats came out against uh, Councilman uh, Rodriguez's uh, proposed bill. I think even at the time, I remember hearing that then-Mayor Bill de Blasio also opposed the bill. Uh, and I think he came at it from a unique perspective. You know, he he didn't say anything about, uh, uh, you know, oh, this is a terrible idea just for the sake of of it being, a you know, a really kind of harebrained proposal. But he said that by allowing this to happen, it would actually disincentivize people from pursuing citizenship. Um, mm-hmm. This bill applies to pretty much anyone that's not a citizen of the U.S. So that it applies to people that are here legally, uh, on people that are pursuing green cards that are trying to become citizens. Uh, it applies to people that are just here on work visas, whether that's an H-1B, an H-2B, an OV. You know, there's all, obviously there's all kinds that they could be in here. And it also, to, it, it could, the way the bill is written, apply to some illegal aliens. They, they, they tried to 
to make it so that that won't be happening. But we know that there's going to be so much fraud. There, there are going to be illegals voting uh, under the auspices of this bill. Uh, and it was interesting that he, that he came at it from that perspective. And then even the incoming mayor, Eric Adams, initially shared some of those concerns. But then after meeting with some of the supporters of the bill, decided he was going to let it go into law. No, of course. It's an interesting situation because you even have former Mayor uh, Bloomberg, you know, he's he has come out against this bill. I remember he recently released an op-ed saying, expressing his opposition to the bill for the very same reasons. Is it, first of all, it violates uh, New York State's constitution. Right. Moreover, he, he also made the same point of, it dilutes the purpose, almost defeats the purpose of becoming a U.S. citizen. You know, he feels that, like, you have individuals who, you know, that are here lawfully for, you know, 30 days who meet the requirements, but let's say you have here someone here who's here on a non-immigrant visa. They're, they're, as, it, as it implies, they're not here to stay indefinitely. So what sense does it make to have somebody who's only going to be here for a short period of time, whose vote, who can't put roots down here, who won't have, who won't deal with the actions of the consequences of their vote? It, it doesn't make much sense when you have former mayors, even the, even the current mayor expressing opposition towards this bill. Right. And I think the 30-day threshold is very interesting, too, because the United States issues tourist visas for 90 days in some cases. And so, you know, there's an interesting thought experiment is you could be a, a citizen of another country with family in the U.S., mm-hmm. you know, in New York City. You could come visit in the in New York City and stay for two, three months and potentially vote in New York City elections and just list your family member's address as your local registered address. Uh, and and it, it really is shocking that that New York would would pursue this. And uh, again, I'm not quite sure what the you know what what the benefit is because you know New York is already, an overwhelmingly democratic city. Right. Uh, so there's really no, it's not like you're, you're diluting the votes of those nasty Republicans <laughs> over, you know, over on the other side of the bridge. So, you know, I, I, and I do see the, the sense where they say, well, a lot of these people live here full time. They should be able to, to vote on things that affect them, particularly if they're, if they're guest workers that are living here for a year, two years. Uh, and that is some of the, the language that we've seen in other similar legislation, for instance, in Montgomery County, Maryland, right. who passed a, a similar but different law allowing uh, aliens to vote in school board elections because they mm-hmm. say, well, even if you're an illegal, your kids can still go to public schools. You should have a say in who sits on the school board. But right. uh, yeah, the, the New York law really does not make a whole lot of sense to me in that angle because you know, it's it, it's hard. It, like you said, there's already a supermajority of Democrats on the city council, and yes, even though there is a huge immigrant population in in New York City, it's not as if their voice isn't heard through the people who are already being elected. No, you're you're absolutely right, Preston. I mean, it, it's interesting how we've seen some strange bedfellows in this in the opposition towards this bill. You know, for instance, we have a uh, councilwoman uh, Ina Vernikov, who is originally from the Ukraine, I believe. Uh, she's a representative out of the Brooklyn uh, borough, and you know, she's a naturalized citizen, and she expressed her opposition to this, saying that I went through the steps to come to this country lawfully. 
I became, I went through the motions to become a naturalized citizen. And to a certain extent, you know, it's a slap to the face to all the hard work that she did abiding by our laws only for someone to, again, who may not, who's only going to be here for a temporary amount of time or what have you to have her vote diluted by somebody else like that. And, you know, we saw this with, uh, with former majority leader Lori uh, Cumbo, uh, a Democrat from the Brooklyn area. One of her concerns was is that there is a she she was concerned over her constituents uh, voting influence in, in the sense of she was concerned about foreign nationals from different parts of the world diluting her constituency's vote. You know, and she, one of the arguments, and, and she's absolutely right, came down to the allocation of resources. You know, she exactly she, yeah. she she represents an area that you know that it, that is underserved when it comes to allocating NYPD officers to a, you know to certain neighborhoods or distributing education or healthcare services. How are these uh, services going to be distributed? Are they going to be going to, you know, struggling Americans, underserved families who are going through tough times and need these services to help get back on their feet? Or are they going to go to individuals who don't have the right to vote for the, in the first place, even though they are here lawfully present? And another thing that's interesting, um, again, several people have pointed this out, is that this could honestly get lawful permanent uh, legal immigrants in trouble because they may think, oh, well, I'm allowed to vote here in the Big Apple in these municipal elections, but it could also lead to them voting in state or federal elections, which they are expressly prohibited to do. Right. That's a great point. <laughs> you know, you know, and, and that's not fair. You know, you have somebody here who votes in, I don't know, in a school board election or, or, or you know, a mayoral election happens to coincide with the 2024 presidential election if a new administration uh, starts cracking down on foreign nationals voting in our elections, that could have some dire consequences for that immigrant status here. Right, and and it's unfortunate because uh, you know these people they thought they were following the rules because they right. were told, "Oh, I can vote." You know, and of course, this is the education that would be required here. A lot of these people are relying on what they're being told from immigrant service groups, um, from politicians who are not exactly the most scrupulous people. Uh, in the country, and so, yeah, like you say, there is a there's a, a huge certainty where there are going to be people who think they are following the rules because they've been told, oh, I can vote in New York City elections, and they end up. I I, I have no idea how the city would even separate lawful right. votes for governor race, state you know state delegates, that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, how do you separate that? If and and like you said, some of these people are going to vote thinking that they're allowed to, and then when they apply to USCIS for for benefits or for to to adjust their status to to get a green card, they're going to find out that they've broken state and federal law and they're not eligible for those benefits or for that adjustment of status. And then so someone who again thinks they've been following the rules has been screwed by the very people who supposedly are, are are helping them. No, of course, and I, I want to harp back upon to your point about uh, illegal aliens voting in, like, taking advantage of, of this new law to vote. I mean, you, we have to remember, you know, New York, ha New York City has the green light laws. Uh, they don't, I mean, illegal aliens can obtain driver's licenses, and I, I, I forgot, it may have been uh, former Mayor Bloomberg who brought this up, who said that, or maybe it was the New York state that doesn't, they don't have secure election laws. So can you imagine the bureaucratic nightmare, as you say, like trying to keep track of like, okay, who's here legally? This individual, or 
do they live at this address? I, I can't imagine the logistical are they giving nightmare. Are they giving different ballots to different classes of people? So, Correct. for instance, if a, if a U.S. citizen registered to vote in New York City, are they given a separate ballot from then a, you know, a, a lawful permanent resident or, you know, a, a guest worker who's just wants to vote in the city elections? I, I have a hard time thinking that there that the bureaucracy is going to be able to handle that or right. or check to make sure sh- uh, that's just that's just a, a nightmare uh, uh, it's a nightmare and it's going to lead to exactly a lot of questions about you know whether votes were fair what you know who was voting for what and it, it, again yeah it's just a bureaucratic nightmare i don't see how they can navigate that mm-hmm. something i wanted to to hit on finally that you brought up is is the allocation of resources and and vote you know this is something especially in a city like new york that is so important so about one million people voted in the last uh mayoral election Mm -hmm. this could enfranchise about eight hundred thousand people and not every single one of them are going to vote right but that's still a, a huge huge number of people that could impact citywide races and you're talking about only a million people voted in this last election, and you're enfranchising close to 800,000. That, that could have a, a massive impact on where resources go, on you know what's, what public schools get certain funding. Where, like you right. brought up where uh, NYPD you know, allocates time and resources, where the fire department allocates time and resources, water, sewage, electricity. These are all things that that are a part of the fabric of local government that now you have people who are not U.S. citizens determining where those resources go. Exactly. I mean, you know, one of the issues that uh, Mayor Adams uh, campaigned on was, you know, public safety in, you know, in, in New York. And, I can't. I can't imagine he ha- he didn't think about this and saying like, look, if we allow potentially eight hundred thousand foreign nationals to vote in our elections, how will that influence uh, his his plan to keep New York New Yorkers safe? You know, for sure. Of course, public sa- safety extends to to everyone for sure. Mm. But it's just a matter of like how we go about that and other city resources. It. Yeah, and um, you know, we'll we'll close close the book on this chapter of the podcast but I uh, did, did want to just mention that uh, this was challenged by uh, the Republican Party of New York uh, they claim as as Jason you brought up earlier that this violates uh, state law it likely violates federal law um, governing elections so this will be a very interesting uh, court case to follow and I'm sure we'll talk more about this as it as it navigates the court system in the future but uh, a concern that that I think we all have is if this succeeds will we start to see other large cities large counties start to pursue similar legislation and I think unfortunately uh, we will. I think that New York City has kind of been the vanguard on this effort, and you might start to see other cities, other localities uh, pursue similar things. And so, speaking of other localities and 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 state level governments pursuing benefits for for aliens and for people that are not citizens of the United States, uh, let's move on to California, uh, on the other side of the country, uh, and uh, talk about what Governor Gavin Newsom is up to these days over there. So the state of California has a $47.5 billion budget surplus, and Governor Newsom proposed using that money 
to significantly expand the Medi-Cal health insurance program uh, to cover all low-income, undocumented adults. Uh, The state calls this, and I'm quoting here, a historic expansion that would make California the first state in the nation to provide universal health care access for all residents, regardless of legal status. Uh, Medi-Cal is California's Medicaid health care program, so both state and federal taxes uh, support this program. So, Jason, this has got to have a huge impact on the people of California, right? Absolutely. I mean, you know, similar to New York, this comes down to a matter another instance of allocation of resources. You know, you have you have the California has one of the largest populations in in the country. So naturally, logic would would hold that more people would be enrolling in the state based uh, Medi-Cal version. Um, What what I find interesting about this is that uh, Governor Newsom had actually put the brakes on this because of the uh, financial viability of this program. Um, he had, you know, and, and that drew the ire of a lot of open borders groups saying that like you're not doing it. In fact, they are still upset with them because they believe that this program does not go far enough. I mean, when we look at the programs that uh, illegal aliens in the state of California are eligible for, they're, they're eligible for SNAP, uh, public housing in some instances. I mean, I- In-state s- college tuition. In-state <laughs> college tuition, yes. In many instances, you know, if you go on certain government websites, you could find, oh, here's a hotline phone number for you to call or a website to help you with your immigration status. And many of these are free of charge, you know, and, you know, to top it all off, the the big magnet for it all are sanctuary jurisdictions, which which have they've almost been the catalyst for all these social programs for illegal aliens into the uh, for the for the state. Right, and there's there's really no better place in the country to be an illegal alien than the state of California. Uh, like you brought up, there there are so many benefits that that are doled out to them um, on the taxpayer expense. And I think what's interesting is is the use of even though Medi-Cal is a a California program, uh, it, it appears the way that it's written that there is federal money going into it. if it if it is. Uh, their extension of Medicaid. I mean, that that does, you know, there's federal dollars that go to support that. So, you know, this is something that, that everyone across the country in uh, in a way is is supporting and paying for with their uh, with their tax dollars. And uh, it's, again, similar to what New York City is doing with with alien voting and that being a vanguard for for other cities localities to try that Mm -hmm. i also wonder if california is doing a similar thing with with this with with allowing aliens to access certain programs that otherwise have really been excluded to only u.s citizens and legal permanent residents people that are on the path to becoming citizens right and it's it's again it it begs the question you know, what is the point of ever pursuing citizenship if you get all the benefits of it and you never have to go through the bureaucratic hoops navigating USCIS to become one? <laughs> no, of course. I mean, when a, when a lawful immigrant, you know, applies for citizenship and once they become a naturalized citizen, there are more responsibilities and more rights that come with that naturally. But if you have states like New York, California that offer these benefits to you regardless of your legal status and you face little chance of facing the consequences of, of, of taking uh, of using those social programs then yeah why wouldn't you just stay uh, 
not adjust your status or become a U.S. citizen to begin with. I mean, you have these state and local governments that are doling out these benefits for you on the basis of your of your immigrant status here in the United States. Yeah, and it's, again, it's just another episode of states, localities, cities that are are really going above and beyond to make it easier for, for illegal aliens to live in the country. And it's uh, it, it, it doesn't really help anyone because that just encourages more and more people to come. It makes the problem at the border worse. Uh, it encourages people to make the horrible journey to the United States mm-hmm. to subject themselves to those horrors to get to the country. And, and they still have, you know, if they still can run into immigration enforcement, it's not, it's not as if ICE isn't arresting people in California. They are, uh, it's, it's harder to do because of some of the sanctuary laws, but they're still doing it. And so there's, there's nothing really moral about encouraging people to, to stay in a country they have no business being in. Um, and, Absolutely. I think we're 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 going to see more and more of this uh, as the immigration issue gets more and more polarized. Of you know, blue states enacting these laws and and encouraging more and more illegal immigration uh, and making it easier for people to live in their states who are uh, undocumented and here illegally. No, of course, it's important that uh, that these jurisdictions, here's hoping, uh, turn off these magnets as soon as possible. Yeah. All right. So um, we're going to now move. Uh, to our final topic today, which is uh, the really unfortunate uh, terrorist event that occurred in Texas. There was a uh, British national who held four people hostage at a Texas synagogue. Uh, and I want to get into the the immigration aspect of this because um, it's important. And uh, this is someone who uh, is a, a British national. Uh, he traveled to the United States uh, on a tourist visa. Um, he arrived at, at um, John F. Kennedy International Airport in New York, either in, in late December or in early January. Uh, and he traveled to Texas. He illegally bought a gun. And he held up um, four people in this synagogue uh, to, to call for the release of a um, convicted terrorist who's being held in Texas. Thank, thank God that, that no one was killed aside from this terrorist. Uh, fortunately, everybody... Um, in the synagogue was safe. It sounds like thanks to the actions of uh, the rabbi who had taken active shooter training and was able to um, to get those members of his congregation out before anything happened. But you know, Jason, how was this? How was this person led into the country? You know, he he had his, according to his brother. I, I'm not sure I've seen this confirmed by anyone in authority in the UK. But mm-hmm. his brother, speaking to the Associated Press. Noted that he had that he had um, criminal convictions in the UK, which should have barred him from entry to the US. Of course, it boggles the mind of how somebody with an extensive rap sheet and and definitely has some red flags in terms of national security was able to enter the United States. When looking at his rap sheet, you know he's he's had convictions for robbery, aggravated assault on a family member with a baseball bat, threats against. Uh, court staff in the UK. He's even had this individual has made irregular several trips to Pakistan and he is suspected to be a member of a of a terrorist group that is banned in many in many countries throughout the world. So what's more so is that MI5 which serves as an intelligence uh, agency for the UK, they knew this they had marked this individual to be a problem like he was a he was a national security concern because of his prior criminal history and his flight patterns to uh, Pakistan 
Moreover, what, what was, what's more interesting about this is that once he departed the country, MI5 did not pursue anything else. I, I can't, I, I don't want to uh, misspeak here, but I don't think they got a hold of any U.S. intelligence agencies or any officials on our side of the pond in terms of, hey, there's an individual who left the country. We should definitely uh, keep an eye out for this individual to prevent something from happening. Yeah, and it's it's particularly interesting because of the you know the laws that we currently have with the United Kingdom. Um, they're a member of the visa waiver program, uh, which is it's only open to not a handful of countries. It's open to about forty. Uh, yeah, about forty. Most, if not all of them, I believe are formal treaty allies of the United States. Um, they, they keep, you know, we keep records of overstays and so on of, of people from these countries. Um, and it's a privileged status to have. Uh, it allows people to travel to the U.S. for temporary reasons without having to, to go through the hoops of applying for a visa sure. um, in their home country. And, and Britain, obviously, is one of our oldest allies. And h- hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, have used the visa waiver program to travel from the UK into the United States. And, you know, there were some questions arising of, did this individual use the visa waiver program Mm -hmm. to come to the U.S.? Uh, So far, and I want to be very clear here, there has not been any official remark from either the uh, from either the United Kingdom or from U.S. authorities, whether or not that was the case. So that's still kind of up in the air. But when you look at it on paper, he's a British national. He seemingly came in for a temporary visit. Uh, all of this would have fallen under the visa waiver program. Really, the only question is, how were his criminal convictions not flagged, which would have led him to be ineligible? No, of course. I mean, again, it boggles the mind as to how this lack of vetting or not enough scrupulous vetting led to this individual to uh, enter the United States. I mean, well, the visa waiver program, again, assuming this is how this individual entered the country to begin with, there should have been more vetting to make sure, to ensure that this individual could not have entered the United States. I mean, while most, most if not all, the, the countries that are in this program have, you know, relatively low levels of, their nationals have low, relatively low levels of illegal immigration, generally don't uh, cause trouble for the United States, so to speak, it there's no excuse. There, there's, this should not have happened. This individual should have been flagged and prevented from boarding the a flight to the United States from from, and th- you know, and thankfully for for uh, for law enforcement, they prevented anything from happening. But the point being is, this incident should not have occurred to begin with. Had it, I, there needs to be a better way of screening these individuals from both sides, with, with our allies and here on here at the home front. Right, and and. Uh, again, I want to be very careful with what we're about to talk about um, because this has not been confirmed, and we're not we're not accusing people of doing things that they that might end up being not true. But um, you know, the State Department did recently waive um, interview requirements for I think it was forty nine thousand visa applicants to both because of COVID concerns and also because of staffing issues, some of which has to do with the border crisis. You know, someone that was that had this kind of background it, it seems like they should have there should have been an interview process there should have been more screening um, and also you know we had there were immigration executive orders issued by President Biden on his first day of office that revoked some of the orders that former President Donald Trump had put in uh, including one that sought to enhance vetting of foreign nationals 
who were traveling to the United States. Obviously, it's a little bit different because this was a British national. So he wouldn't have the kind of scrutiny that someone traveling from 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 Pakistan or from Iran or or any of these other countries would have Mm -hmm. faced. But again, it goes back to to, you know, are we are we sharing enough intelligence with our counterparts in the UK and in the you know the European Union um, and other allies are we monitoring people who are no, who are known or suspected of having ties to countries like Pakistan that you know have some really really shady operations right. um, and I think if nothing else I think this is maybe an opportunity for the Biden administration to really examine the information that we're sharing with foreign intelligence agencies to to look at ways we can enhance vetting even in cases where we do have programs like the visa waiver or uh, or other preferential visa treatment to to certain countries i i I just think this is this shouldn't be something that we just ignore and push under the rug and move on They're, they're clearly he fell through the cracks. Correct. No, and, and the interesting thing is, Preston, is that one one of the few things that the Biden administration has retained from the Trump administration is, well, while, uh, while President Trump was still in office, he had he had created a system, or his administration rather, created a system to streamline the vetting process here in the states. So he essentially got people from the FBI, what have you, all these individuals in in, in a building or in a room, so to speak, and basically. It, it allowed for easier communication of streamlining, saying, hey, this individual from so such and such nation, what do we know about them? Are they on anybody's watch list? So the Biden administration has still retained that program of having a more cohesive intelligence information sharing network. However, it needs to go a step further. We know, we know that the Biden administration doesn't want bad actors to enter the country. However, Removing executive orders such as enhanced screening, to me, that's just reckless. You, mm-hmm. you, we cannot be having that, especially with how porous our, our border is. We really need to be tightening every every procedure up as, as soon as possible. And, and I think it really kind of boils down to this, is that President Biden really should have taken the time to understand his predecessor's border security efforts on day one to just remove all of them without even taking a cursory mm-hmm. glance and saying, hey, you know what, some of these we might... And and to President Biden's credit, they, they've done this with some other... Th- you know, they've kept Title 42 in place. Right. Um, and they're defending it in court. Why wasn't there a similar effort <laughs> to look at some of these other executive orders, particularly with international travel, and saying, you know what, this makes sense. This is something that can only help the U.S., it's not hurting anyone. Why don't we just keep this in place? And I think that's really, I, I hope the lesson to be learned from this is that there are still, they're not loopholes, but there's still blind spots in our, the way that we vet people coming into the U.S., even from allied countries. And it, it leads to, to tragedies like this. And again, this could have been much worse. You know, um, Fortunately, it wasn't. But I, I hope that the Biden administration takes the opportunity to, to look at this as a, as a learning moment and to maybe re-implement some of these efforts that were put in place by the, the Trump administration to stop this from happening. No, absolutely, Preston. I mean, when it comes to national security, the, you know, it's obviously a topic that should not be taken lightly. We're talking about the lives of countless Americans, you know, many, obviously many, many illegal immigrants whose, whose lives could be potentially in danger because 
we chose to cut corners when it came to our vetting, screening, and our own border security. So let's hope that, as you said, that the Biden administration can look at this as a flashpoint and say, you know what, this is a common sense procedure that we can do that that tightens the security for everybody here in the United States. And I think that is as good a point as any to end on. Uh, I want to thank our listeners for tuning in, and we, we hope that you continue listening to the Understanding Immigration podcast. Please share the pod with your friends, family, coworkers, or anyone who you think would be interested in learning more about the impacts that immigration has on our country. You can find our podcasts on all listening platforms, and you can learn more about FAIR by visiting our website, fairus.org. Uh, We also encourage you to check out our Facebook, uh, YouTube, and Twitter accounts for up-to-the-minute updates on what's happening in immigration policy. So that will be it for us today. And until next time, this has been Understanding Immigration presented by FAIR.